It's another edition of Making Money with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager. I'm Gord Whitehead, a retired broadcaster. Ron, I'm, I'm longing for the day when we'll be together under the same roof, but who knows when that will be. In the meantime, I guess we should apologize for having to use phone connections, but that's the world which we're living in right now. Let's talk a little bit about rebalancing. There's a lot going on right now. The markets are hot. Some would say they're a little overheated. Is this a good time to be taking a look at your strategy? And let's talk about rebalancing. First, what, what is rebalancing? Well, essentially rebalancing or asset allocation is another term is involves putting a percentage of your capital in various investment buckets like stocks, fixed income, real estate, and precious metals. And then over time, selling down the winners and investing those proceeds in the losers to maintain the percentages that you previously allocated to uh, each asset. Now, if you go back into our archives, uh, we did a whole show. In fact, I think we've got a couple in there on asset allocation. So if you want to go back and look at how you should allocate your assets, that's a different uh, subject altogether. And that's probably the basis. So if you haven't done this, go into the archives, look at our show on, on asset allocation, and you'll get the nuts and bolts on how to figure out what percentage you should have in, in each asset class. But, you know, your, your total should come out to 100. So, for example, if you have 25 in stocks, 25% fixed income, 25% real estate, 25% precious metals, and all of a sudden your stock part of the portfolio is 50%, and uh, maybe fixed income is 20, maybe real estate is 20, and maybe precious metals is, is 20, well, uh, you cut your stocks back down to 25% of the original allocation, and then you allocate that money the, back into fixed income, real estate, and precious metals so that you get uh, back up to your 25% in each category. So that, that really is, a, a, in a nutshell, how it works. Well, why does it work? Why is it, why is it such an essential tool to take into consideration? Well, there's three reasons for that. And the first one is simply most people don't know when to sell. And often that leads to them not selling at all. So instead of taking some profits occasionally, to them the market experience is more like a rodeo where they get on a bunking bronco and they go up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. <laughs> you know, and, and, and really that's not a great way to invest. But rebalancing mechanically gets you to sell things that have performed well and to buy into things that have done poorly. And that's the classic selling high and buying low, which most investors uh, feel intuitively wrong because they typically buy at the top and sell at the bottom. So this allows you to mechanically develop good investment behavior and, and frankly helps you in the process of, of taking things off the table when you need to, which frankly, for most people, is not that intuitive. This would also, also well, you talked about this. It would keep you from getting too heavily into one sector, then, wouldn't it? Uh, exactly. What it does is it prevents overconcentration. And typically, what happens is that you you hang on to your winners and hang on to your winners, and they become a bigger and bigger and bigger part of your portfolio. And then, of course the inevitable comes along and that particular asset or sector retracts in price and 
you find that you've you've lost all the gains you've made. Whereas with rebalancing, it just forces you along the way to trim back as something goes up. It doesn't mean you have to completely get rid of it. But typically, that's what portfolios do. When something has risen dramatically, it doesn't mean they sell their entire position, but they, they do trim the concentration back. So they're taking some profits along the way. And then finally, it keeps you from drifting away from your long-term goal. So if your long-term goal is to have some position in stock, some position in real estate, well, if something's done really well, it distorts one sector and gets you away from your, your, your long-term goals. So rebalancing keeps you focused and keeps you on track. And that's just another good reason to do it. So now there there could be costs associated with this, could there not? If you're if you're heavy in one sector and you decide to sell down, you're going to pay some commissions, right? Yeah, there's really four costs that uh, rebalancing has. So it's it's not uh, it's not free of costs by any stretch of the imagination. The first one's brokerage fees. Now, for for most people, trade a lot more than I do, uh, frankly, and they trade a lot more than I'd recommend. So for many people now, brokerage fees aren't as big a cost as they used to be because they're they're dealing at a discounter or they've they've negotiated a deal with their uh, portfolio manager or the guy that said helps them to get their fees down. So this is a less of a problem than it used to be. But if you're rebalancing all the time, in other words, you're you're doing it monthly or weekly, um, you're going to end up paying extra in brokerage fees. And if the investments that you're rebalancing are outside the RSP, the more you rebalance, the more taxes you're going to pay. Uh, the third risk, certainly, is that you're going to be not compounding 100 cent dollars. So if you can leave an investment alone and let it grow for, let's say, 20 years and not touch it, well, you've never paid tax on any of your gains. So every time you sell something, and you're going to take only have 75% of the profits to reinvest because 25% in Alberta, roughly 24% in Alberta, is going to the tax fund. So the more you trade, the more costly it gets. And finally, um, most of us, when we watch the ticker that crosses, if we watch any of the, the news media that, that covers stocks all the time, you'll see that there's a bid and an ask. In other words, if, if a stock is trading at $50 and there's a, a bid in, in other words, somebody trying to buy it at 50, well, the ask or the sell price is not 50. It might be 50 and a quarter. It might be 50 and an eighth. Um, but there's a spread. And every time you buy or sell, there's a trader in the middle who keeps that that spread. It can even be a couple cents, but sometimes on a liquid stocks, it can be five or 10% of the value. So every time you trade, um, you're going to lose the bid ask spread. And especially for aggressive traders or people are rebalancing all the time, that can end up being your biggest cost, frankly, uh, more than taxes, more than brokerage fees. It's just the fact that your bid ask spreads really start to add up. Now, you suggested going back to the archives and looking at asset allocation and stuff. Let's sort of just do a capsulization here. So how do you determine an asset allocation? Well, there's really three factors that determine your your asset allocation or how much risk you should really be taking, because that's the bottom line is the question you're asking. 
And the first is your time horizon. So if you're a young person, you can take more risk. In other words, you can probably have a higher exposure to stocks and a higher exposure to real estate and a lesser exposure to fixed income. Then as you get closer to retirement, you're generally going to want to have a more stable portfolio. Uh, the second is your risk tolerance. And for, for people that have a hard time figuring that out, I recommend that they apply the sleep test. If your portfolio is so volatile that it's keeping you up at night, you're pacing the phone or you're pacing the floor at three o'clock in the morning because you're worried about what your portfolio is doing. You've got too much risk. So take less. And uh, here again, if you deal with an advisor, sit down with that advisor and go through and they have tests that you can take that look at your investment personality. Uh, you can look at your portfolio and you can do a review just to see how much risk you're taking. But if you're not sleeping well at night, time to revisit that. And thirdly is uh, capital available to invest. In other words, if you, if, if you have a hundred thousand dollars and you're a couple of years from retirement, you can't afford to take the big risks that someone, you know, for example, if someone has, uh, many of the experts will use this particular benchmark of if you have 10 million or more. They're saying, well, you don't need to be in the market at all. You can just put your money in and let it earn daily interest and live off the capital happily for the rest of your life if you have a reasonable lifestyle. So if you've got lots of capital, you don't have to invest nearly as, as uh, much. If you have almost no capital, then there again, uh, the other side of the risk equation kicks in. You can't afford to take too much risk because it could wake you up. But if you have a modest amount of capital, but that you need to grow through retirement, then you're going to have to have some exposure to, especially the stock market and real estate, to be able to have enough uh, to see you through your retirement years. So there's a balance in there, and you just got to spend a little bit of time working on the working the numbers to make sure what's right for you. And like I say, uh, use these three. Um, benchmarks to go back and listen to our archived show on developing your own asset allocation and then build it from there before before you start to do rebalancing. So what, what do we rebalance, Ron? Do we take a look at, say we're in four different <clears throat> sectors, do we look at each sector individually and then each stock within that sector? Is that the way to go about it? I think the way to start is to look at your asset classes and, you know, you can have more asset classes than just stocks, fixed income, real estate, and precious metals. But for most investors, those are tend to be the, the four buckets that their investments fall within. You know, there's exotic things like alternative investments, options, futures contracts, arts, art collectibles, cars, things like that. And obviously, if you have those, you'll build them into your your asset allocation. But for most people, uh, and to keep it simple for our shore, you've got four asset classes, stocks, fixed income, real estate, and precious metals. And you assign a percentage to each one of those, and then you review them. And if one has moved up and the other has moved down, and we'll talk about the frequency of asset allocation uh, a little later, a little later on in this podcast, Typically, what you do is, as we used in our example at the beginning, the one that's gone up, you peel back a little bit if it's above your, your 
your asset allocation and you apply it to those uh, other three sectors or sector that have gone have gone down so that you keep over time you keep your asset mix as close to that in, uh, in the case for example for example 25 25 25 25 as as you can now you might have you might be young you might have 70 percent in stocks 10 percent fixed income 10 percent real estate and 10 percent precious metals or 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 80 percent in stock 20 percent fixed income and that's all you have i mean that's fine but once you set an asset up an asset allocation you want to you want to stick with it for a period of time as you get older you'll you'll adjust the percentage mixes and so that you tend to get more conservative over time but you know that that is a longer term review on a uh, view on a rebalancing which we're not going to get into here but you know you pick your asset classes and what percentage you want to put into them and then you review it occasionally to see if you're on target. Well, especially for stocks, if you have, let's say you have 25% of your portfolio in stocks, who knows how many stocks you hold, depending on the size of your portfolio. Do you start looking at individual sectors in stocks as well and say, gosh, it's a little, the banks, let's say, are a little overheated. Maybe I should back (laughs) off a little bit and put some in something else. Yeah, for stocks, for example, there's five major sectors. And how you allocate across these sectors is here again going to depend on your time horizon and your risk, your risk tolerance. But there's financials, there's consumer, there's manufacturing, there's resources, and that includes oil and gas and lumber and mining and ag. So resources tend to be the most volatile generally of all these sectors. And then you've got utilities. So if you're a really conservative investor, you might want to weight utilities and consumer products highest, you know, maybe 25% each. And then the remaining 50%, you might want to put uh, spread across uh, financials, manufacturing, you know, maybe putting uh, 20% each in those and 10% resources, you know, looking at your risk profile. And then when you do your rebalancing, you look at the major sectors, but if you've got to, too much in stocks, well, you might want to look at each one of these sectors and see how you're balanced there, and that will help determine how you can raise some extra cash to move into some of these other sectors. So uh, you also want to not just look at asset classes, but you want to, when you're rebalancing, you want to drill down here and and look at how you're you're invested right across the um, the spectrum. And of course, the fixed income, uh, here again, there's going to be a mixture of things like guaranteed investment certificates, bonds, preferred shares, mortgages. And you want to look at your mix over time with, with those things as well. And you also look at uh, at ratings, on, on especially on fixed income, on bonds and things like that, right? Are they, are they solid or are they maybe a little bit sketchy? That is a very, very good point, Gord. And generally, you'll find that people have style drift, especially in fixed income, where to get higher returns these days, you've got to take more and more and more and more risk. And typically, bonds are rated AAA to D, investment grade. And we're going to have a show on, on 
on bond ratings, preferred ratings, and how to buy a quality, or the show's going to be called the AAA portfolio. If you're worried about things, how to invest in literally the best of the best. But in bonds, you've got AAA to D. In preferreds, you've got P1 to P5. And typically, triple um, B and up is investment grade for, for bonds and debentures. P1 and P2 are investment grade for preferreds. And so you want to review your portfolio every once in a while because if you get indicted to higher interests, rates. It means that you're going to be in the P3, P4, P5 range for preferreds and uh, below triple B for bonds. And frankly, when you have a credit crunch, those non-investment grade fixed income securities are the ones that really get crushed. So if you're what many in the industry call a yield hog, in other words, you've got your head in the trough and you're trying to get as much yield as you possibly can, every once in a while you need to stop and take a look at this because it's great to get the yield. And of course, everything holds up really well when markets are hot and there's lots of money chasing everything. But when you have a bear market, most of this stuff is, especially in fixed income, it can be very, very difficult to get rid of. And your liquidity dries up on these things. So you want to adjust the portfolio fixed income to solid investment grade uh, fixed income investments while markets are hot and there's still liquidity. I guess the other thing we have to look at here too, Ron, is is we have to let geography play into this, don't we? Like what part of the world economy seems to be chugging along a little bit better than, say, North America? Do we, do we focus on that too? Well, you have to have exposure to other areas of the world. I mean, regrettably, Canada represents only about two and a half, three percent of the global equity markets and global investment market, actually. And so you need to spend time looking at other areas, especially I know in my portfolio, I've got about 40 percent of my portfolio in the in Canada. I've got about 30 uh, percent in the U.S. and I've got about 20 percent in Europe. And then I have the rest sort of scattered around in Asia and emerging markets. So, and Canada has been pretty hot recently, but until recently, other areas of the world offer much better choices. So you want exposure there, especially, you know, Canada doesn't have a lot of consumer stocks, you know, great names like Starbucks and so on. There's not many of those in Canada. Canada doesn't have a lot of pharmaceuticals. Canada doesn't have a lot of manufacturing. So there's areas, Canada's got a lot of financials, Canada's got a lot of utilities, Canada's got a lot of railroads, Canada's great at real estate. There's areas that you can bulk up on in the Canadian market, but there's also areas that are tough for you to do that. And that's especially where you can get your exposure overseas. Go to countries where, frankly, they have a lot more of those type of companies that are hard to find in Canada. Okay, so let's let's wrap this up. How do we go about this rebalancing? So what, what's the plot here? Well, rebalancing, if uh, you're retiring, you want, that's probably the easiest way to rebalance your portfolio board because you're taking money out of it regularly. So, you know, if 
if uh, you have pensions and you have other other income coming in, rental income, and you decide you need fifteen hundred dollars a month, uh, two thousand dollars a month in cash flow coming off your portfolio, well, the easiest way to get it is each month is to sell down areas that 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 have gone above your allocation level and sell them down slowly. So. Uh, one of the easiest ways to rebalance is for the retired person. Just take out, take money slowly out of things that have really been going up dramatically. Uh, secondly, you can use the income your portfolio generates. So if you have excess capital, especially if you haven't retired yet, and there's more money coming into the portfolio and you're not taking it out because you're still working, and in fact, you're still in savings mode, you can use the income that the portfolio generates to rebalance into sectors that have underperformed. So, you know, if you find, for example, in your portfolio that um, resources have been extraordinarily hot and you've got some extra dividends there, but manufacturing hasn't, well, you can use the income to put some more of your money into the manufacturing to build it back up to say you decide you want 20% in there. So income from the portfolio is just another easy way to rebalance, especially when you're working. Uh, thirdly, you can use any income that you have from employment to invest in sectors that have un- underperformed. So if you're still in savings mode, um, that is pretty easy because you just, when you're trying to, you know, if you allocate, uh, you got $500 a month to put into investments, well, maybe you'll let it sit there for two or three months until you've got a more significant amount, a couple thousand dollars. Then you look at your portfolio and say, well, I'm going to add to this. It's been underperforming. And that's another easy way to do that. And the other thing is a couple of times a year, rebalance your asset classes, right? Right. Once or twice a year, rebalance your asset classes. Uh, more regularly, rebalance sectors and and also look at individual securities. So, um, you know, I don't think for most people, they want more than about 20% in a particular sector. And I don't think uh, you typically want more than about 10% of your portfolio in any individual security. And if they start getting above that level, uh, you just start strategically trimming uh, a certain amount on a regular basis. Okay, got a question here to wrap up this week, Ron, uh, from Norma. Thanks for providing the information on investing that you do in your weekly podcasts. I'd like your comments on the importance of an individual shareholder voting on proposals being presented at an AGM. What do you think about that? You are the shareholder. <laughs> oh, definitely you are the shareholder. So if uh, like if, if you own stocks, you're going to get proxies in the mail all the time. And if it is a big company, uh, typically the institutions will own 70 or 80 percent of the mm-hmm. stock or maybe even 90 percent of the stock. So for most votes, to be honest with you, I don't waste my time because – uh, the big institutions, they have, they're driving the bus, <laughs> they're driving the bus, like you say, and they've also, they've got committees and there's, there's uh, third party companies that look and tell them how to vote. So you're wasting your time for most big companies. If, uh, you're voting now, voting is really essential in two cases. Voting is essential, especially if you've got a small um, 
shareholder base, and you don't have a lot of institutional interest. So you get smaller companies, especially things listed on the, uh, the venture exchange. Many times, they're, they're fairly illiquid. And you've got to watch those closely because often these small companies, many cases, they're not as well-governed as some of the big companies are. And there's not as much scrutiny to be as well-governed either. So you need to pay attention, especially to things like um, how much the management is paying itself, uh, what kind of decisions are they are they making, especially are they giving themselves sweet deals? Is there things that they're doing, like uh, they're, they're, they've set up a company, but management also has private companies, and there's cross-pollination, cross-financing, that kind of stuff can get you in trouble. And so, especially on smaller companies, you really want to pay attention to that. And if there's a takeover or management wants to go uh, take a company private, often what will happen is a company's dropped in value and the management wants to take it private. And then when it goes, when they, when the markets are more opportune, they take it back public at a higher price. Well, generally I vote against those because management just wants to hoop you. So I always make sure that I, I vote for those that I don't want to take. I don't want to be taken out at a low price. I want, the, the, chance, the stock to have a chance to recover and for me to recoup uh, what I could have gotten. So those are a couple of examples where uh, you really you really want to pay attention. If, and if the voting is close, so there's a takeover, sometimes they'll literally hire calling desks to call every investor when it's the vote is the squeaker, then your vote really counts. So then you want to make sure that you're, invest, you're, you're voting one way or the other. Well, I hope that eases your mind a little bit, Norma, and answers your question. Remember, if you have a question for the financial coach, you can uh, send it to us through letsmakemoney.ca, which is our website, or also through the cfcw.com portal. It'll come to Ron's inbox and my inbox, and we'll look at it in upcoming episodes. Or if you have a suggestion for a show you'd like to hear something about, let us know. On behalf of the financial coach, Ron Hebert, I'm Gord Whitehead. We'll talk to you again next week. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.